Hi. Hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those who want to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm joined by Daria Little, Muslim convert to Catholicism and author of From Islam to Christ from Ignatius Press. This is a fantastic conversion story as she recounts her experience going from Islam to atheism to Protestant Christianity and finally into the Catholic Church. It's a great conversation, which starts with her faith journey, and we also talk about how we, as Catholics, can share our faith with our Muslim brothers and sisters. It's wonderful, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation very much. Have a listen. My guest today is Daria Little, uh, a Muslim convert to Catholicism. Daria has degrees in international relations and history, a PhD in political science from the University of Durham, and is the author of From Islam to Christ, One Woman's Path Through the Riddles of God, published by Ignatius Press. Hello, Daria. How are you? Hi. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm really excited to have you. And you know what? I first saw your story on The Journey Home uh, with Marcus Grodi, a show which I faithfully watched uh, even before I became a Catholic. It was instrumental in my journey into the Catholic Church. And what piqued my interest with your story was, first of all, we have the same last name, which caught my attention right away. But the the second thing was you you very humbly at the beginning of your story just name dropped the fact that you grew up in Iconium, which is of course <laughs> one of the locations that Paul visits in his uh, missionary journeys, and that that caught my attention pretty quickly as as well. So okay, um, so both on both accounts. For first of all. Um, you know, I changed my last name. Little is not my real last name, but my husband picked it. So, um, but we, it's our adopted last name. So we are like adopted, very distant cousins in our head. You know, so we're all brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church. Um, but yeah, the Iconium thing, I love it because it's one of the um, times. <laughs> okay, the very first time uh, a Christian showed me a Bible. And and I because I was trying to tell her that uh, Christianity is a Western religion and it's all you know made up, constructed, all that you know jibber jabber. And she's like, "It's not a Western religion." I'm like, "Yes, it is. This is how much I know. I knew about Christianity." So she opened the back of her Bible and I see the map of Turkey there, and and I saw like where I grew up, and I was like, "This was amazing. That was one of the first shocking things for me. I think it was." Maybe the second day I met uh, with the lady who introduced Christianity to me, we, we will get back. So I always point out, I grew up in Icon- Iconium, where St. Paul came and visited, and he got kicked out. And he would still get kicked out if he visited Iconium. <laughs> Nothing changed in the last 2,000 years. Thank you very much. So. Oh, that's quite the humble brag to be, to, you know, grow up in one of the uh, cities mentioned in uh, the New Testament. And, and one of the cities which St. Paul was kicked out of. I love that part, too. <laughs> So well, that's like 
I am trying to be not to be humble there. A friend of mine is um, giving a talk on the book of Galatians. And I'm like, how come you didn't invite me? How many actual Galatians do you know? But he didn't, so it happens. <laughs> You're a local. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Well, why don't you take us through um, some of your story? Um, because it's really a fascinating story. And it's really one of the the stories I've been really captivated by uh, reading and listening to. Um, and I think that our listeners of this podcast will really enjoy hearing a bit about it. So why don't you take us through some of your story um, about how you entered into uh, the Catholic faith? Sure. Uh, I will be talking for a while. So just, you know, uh, get comfortable. Um, so when I went to journey home to record and they asked me what byline they wanted to use, like, should we put former Muslim, former atheist, former Protestant? I'm like, sure, put them all in. It's humbling because I've been wrong so many times. Like, like you haven't been wrong as many times as I have been. So, uh, but part, <laughs> you know, part of it, I'm not responsible, but I grew up in uh, Konya, which is Iconium uh, in the book of Acts. And my uh, parents were, and they are still Muslims, but they are not very strictly Muslim. Because Turkey is kind of stuck between West and the East, like um, 99.6% of the population is Muslim. But at the same time, there's there has been last 100 years, this desire to be westernized and be more advanced and progressive, which has changed in the last 10 years because of our pre like current president. But but um, so what happened is when I was a little girl, we, we went to school. And we learned about all the Western concepts and, um, you know, secularism and republics and all that. And then in the summer, my brother and I, we went to the local, local mosque and learned how to read the Quran. So we kind of grew up both sides. And uh, what happened is this is um, kind of maybe maybe hard to understand for Americans, but uh, Islam is part of the national identity. Like you need to be Muslim, not too much, but you cannot be anything else either. So, um, so we grew up in that. And I think uh, my parents wanted us to be better Muslims than they were. My, my father didn't observe anything. He didn't pray fast. None of that. But my mother did. Um, so when we started to learn the Quran, that was their desire so that we'd be better. And, um, and I think I had a spiritual pro propensity. So he, um, I really like liked reading the Quran, even though I didn't understand anything because you're only supposed to read it in Arabic and Turkish is very different than Arabic. Um, but I, I enjoyed the spiritual things even as a child. It was a big part of my life, and it stayed that way um, until my parents got a divorce. Um, so I am around 11, 12. And it, this was a big deal because divorce wasn't common at all where I lived. Um, even now, it's not that common, even though um, it is becoming more acceptable. Um, and that kind of shook my world. Um, and it, it happens to every child, you know, east, west, wherever their world revolve around their parents' world. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, like everything is their fault or like they're just so self-centered in a way. It's just, it literally shook my, um, um, my, like my, um, the way I saw myself and the world. 
and it's funny because they didn't even have a very good uh, marriage. Like I talk about it in my in my book. It was it was kind of a very um, Eastern and Muslim kind of relationship between men and women. And um, uh, even though it wasn't a good marriage, it still shattered my world because as a child we um, we kind of want our parents to stay together. You mm-hmm. know that's how the Lord designed mm-hmm. it, and it kind of devastates us. And um, I started, I doubted their love, right? Because, okay, like if you actually loved me, why wouldn't you stay together again? Like, because I'm the center of my own universe, <laughs> you know, that's how, um, and um, the reason they got divorced is, um, so my mother was a nurse and um, she worked eight to four every day. Um, which is kind of in Turkey, not uncommon for women to work. Again, it's, it's different from most of the Middle Eastern countries. Women have a lot of rights, but it's kind of external because on the inside, it's a very Eastern and Muslim culture. So she had to work, she, she had to work or, and she wanted to work, but then she was still expected to do everything else um, like a, 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 a Muslim wife should do. So she came home at four and then she, you know, she had to do three courses of meals for my father and, and do all the uh, housework. We didn't have a laundry um, washing machine. So he, she had to do the laundry of four people every Saturday by hand. <laughs> and then on Sunday, we would go visit my uh, paternal grandmother and she would have to clean her house and wash her clothes. And then come Monday she was back to work again. And you can imagine this is not a very satisfying (laughs) life, you know? So uh, there was that like gender hierarchy that is not like a self-giving, you know, Mm -hmm. not that higher, you know, it's not that hierarchy is bad in in itself, but it's not um, the way Christ offers it, offered it. So um, when my uh, father always cheated on my mother but this is also an, another thing that's very acceptable in muslim countries like men can do a lot more things than women um so as long as you're and as long as you're not very obvious about it usually women look away right so for years my mom just kind of turned a blind eye and finally, my father must have thought, hey, this is going well. I could have two wives. And it's illegal in Turkey um, to have two civil marriages. And when people do it, they have like one legal wife and the other ones are like they're his wife through religious ceremony. So he wanted to have another wife with a religious Muslim ceremony. And my mom said no. So that's how they got divorced. And it was kind of really ugly as many divorces were. So when my um, my world turned upside down and when I started doubting their uh, love for me, then I also started doubting what they taught me. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens a lot in the West. Like when people get a divorce, they don't understand how much it tears the child's mind apart. Like, you know, um, it's like, oh, we still give him a stable family, but like some something becomes fundamentally shaken uh, Mm -hmm. in their world that Mm -hmm. you're like you kind of are suspicious of everything that's why divorce is i think such a big deal i mean in east west everywhere you know so um one of the things about islam um is that if you ever want to talk to a muslim 
very important to understand. Um, a Muslim's relationship with Allah is at that of a slave and master. And, um, and the, the fear is of a servile fear. Like, okay, um, St. Thomas calls it a servile fear. And it's not in itself is bad, but it only can be used as a tool. For instance, um, I tell my two-year-old, the oven is hot, so you could, you shouldn't touch, you shouldn't touch. And, you know, if I kind of slap her hand, and then she's afraid of me slapping her hand, because she doesn't understand that the oven is hot and it's going to hurt her. So she obeys me because I have power over her. So it's like a, yeah, servile fear. Right. So right. what this, yeah. So what it should lead is uh, filial fear, where as she grows up, she knows that, no, my mother loves me and I should obey her because I'm afraid of disappointing her. So when she, when she told me not to do something, I shouldn't do it because of her love for me instead of fear of punishment. So in Islam, it never comes to that because there is no filial relationship between a Muslim and Allah. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Bit? Okay. Yep. Okay. So, um, and so that fear is ingrained in you from a very, very young age. And um, we were told not to ever imagine how Allah would look like. Right? It's a very iconoclastic um, religion. And so I was a little girl. I must be like seven or eight because I was walking to school, I remember. And the night before, I had like tried to imagine how Allah would look like in a childish way. And I was so scared. Like I was paralyzed with fear that whole day. And I was walking to um, school and I saw these big boulders next to the creek. And I thought, oh, those might be little kids who tried to imagine Allah, right? <laughs> like you're filled with fear. And this was like an actual fear for me. So it's like you start with a very early age and then that kind of becomes part of you. Like you just don't ever question. Question itself, doubt itself is sin and is punishable, right? So it's kind of, there's this fence. It's an electric fence. You don't even like, you don't even approach to this electric fence of doubt, in Islam, like let alone actually try to go look over what's on the other side or jump over it. And that's one of the reasons it's a very hard soil. So it's so very hard to talk to Muslims. But when my parents got divorced, finally, I was like, hmm, did, is everything they told me right? Was it all right? And, um, and my first reaction was, to read the Quran more, pray more. But the more I read and the more I prayed, actually, I felt like there was like nothing, that there was darkness. Um, like I, I felt this oppressive darkness every time I prayed and read. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to read it in, um, in Turkish for the first time in my life. Like I had memorized chunks of the Quran, all the prayers and everything, but I had never, ever read the Quran in Turkish. And you learn from your elders in Islam, right? So I went to see, we were, we learned it from the imam. And there was like an older woman who taught me Quran when I, you know, became like a higher level reader. Um, so you don't actually go and read it and learn it for yourself. That's I assume how it has been for a long time for most religions. And um, 
when I started reading it for the first time with that like seed of doubt in my mind, uh, it was it was really easy, like because the reason this um, questioning or doubt is so discouraged is that because it's a house of cards, like it's just so easy mm-hmm. to collapse. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So. So when I read Muhammad's life and be, when we are taught Muhammad's life in, in the state schools and in our religious um, courses, we always are told he always fought defensive wars. He was just and merciful and, you know, all, all that stuff. And but I when I read the, the Quran and the Hadith, which uh, recorded um, his life and his words, it's like this is not a just man. It's like it. I was like, this is another lustful, power-hungry man. And that was a very rude awakening for me. And um, and I think for Muslims, it's most often it is to bring them to that point, that point of doubt that's the hardest, then um, actually convincing them of that. This isn't the truth. Um, so it's like almost like a spiritual, emotional battle or psychological even than actual like an intellectual mm-hmm. um, conversation. Does it make sense? Yeah, so, that's um, very interesting. Yeah, the um, what's his name? Okay, he just passed away last year. Nabil Qureshi. He um, he grew up in America in like a more peaceful sect of Islam, and his his conversion is a really good read too. Um, and he had to come to that place of doubt through intellectual means, through questioning, basically. But, you know, he, he did get there. But it's like um, he he was never, like, taught to question. So that's that's how it is with Islam. And I kind of turned away from, um, when I turned away from Islam, I kind of slowly became an atheist. And I don't think it was really a conscious effort because the way Islam was Islam teaches is Allah sent uh, Moses um, and a book to him and Jews um, corrupted Moses's teachings. Then Allah sent Jesus, Jesus and Angel, the New Testament, and Christians corrupted his teachings. And finally, as the last prophet, Muhammad was sent. So to me, I don't know why I never even doubted it. To me, all religions were the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why, like, I didn't even look into Christianity, even on Judaism. I'm like, okay, they're all the same gibberish and craziness, man-made stuff. <clears throat> so I, 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 I became an atheist um, eventually. So I was like, by the time I was 13, 14, I was like, I declared myself atheist. <laughs> and um, bad relationship at home with my mom, who was really depressed because of the divorce. My father was gone. And... um and then I had, I kind of had this group of friends who were kind of outcasts like me. Um, so we kind of turned into each other and we kind of got drunk all the time and then played chess. It's like this weird geeky <laughs> party group. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it was bad. I mean, although now that I live in America, it's not as bad as it could be. So I'm thankful I grew up in Turkey after, <laughs> after all. Um uh, and um, so, like, I kind of found a new family of friends for myself. Like, we read Dostoevsky. I read Lord of the Rings. Like, I mean, um, 
so it was like this really geeky kind of group. Um, and, um, but it made me really slowly arrogant, I think. And, um, and I kind of embraced this sinful life because I had no moral compass um, whatsoever. Um, so when I was, this is just went on. And when I was 19, I got into a university in Ankara, uh, which is not in the Bible. But (laughs) it is in the region of Galatia, technically. Um, So, and I really needed a job. And in Turkey, like, no, very few, very few university students has to work. Their families support them through college. Um, So it was really hard to find jobs as a student. But so one day I was waiting at the bus stop and I saw this little flyer that said, an American lady is looking for a uh, university, English-speaking university student um, um, because she was she wanted to learn Turkish. So I was like, ah, oh, with my luck, she already found something because it was kind of a battered-up flyer. So I went about my way a, a day, came home, just relaxing on the couch at night. It's like 10. And like there's this voice in my head, go get the number go get the number. I'm like, ah, oh, it's 10. I am in my pajamas. Like, I'm not going to call anybody at 10. It's like very unacceptable socially to call anyone after nine. But it's like this nagging wouldn't go away, which we now call him Holy Spirit. But <laughs> I didn't know back then. So I got up in my pajamas, shuffled to the bus stop, got the number, called the lady. She said, okay, come over tomorrow. So I went there. <laughs> I, I just I just love her, bless her. So she opens the door, and right across the door, um, there's this cross-stitched Bible verse. See, I am 19 at this time, so I know everything. I don't know if you met. <laughs> um, so I'm like, oh, lady, she's a Christian. I felt so bad for her. Um, like, And she's the first Christian I met. Like, I met kind of a few foreigners, but nobody um, actually who believed in anything. So she's like, yeah, I um, let's have a give it a try, a couple of weeks. If it, it if it turns out, you know, it works out, you can I will hire you. And she ended up hiring me, and um, so I think it was like the, the first or the second tutoring session. I was like, so you're a Christian? So she didn't even have to like start the conversation. Little did I know, um, she had she grew up here in an atheist family. And she had she converted either in high school or the beginning of college, and um, her husband uh, she and her, her husband left lucrative jobs in America to pre- to come to Turkey to preach the gospel. Five point <laughs> Calvinist lady, awesome. She's like she, she was great. It was a very happy day when I converted to Catholicism. But um, so her and I. Um, She's, she was very intellectual, and she she's she was what I needed, right? Like, yep. um, the I was talking to for my podcast. I was talking to um, another Canadian. I, I I'm gonna start liking Canadians. Who knew? <laughs> um, Patrick Sullivan. Have you heard of him? Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> great. And great you guy. and you talked to Patrick Coffin, who is also a Canadian. I know, but I think he's <laughs> contaminated now. Don't you think? <laughs> I think probably. <laughs> he's been there too long i think so and in california out of all places (laughs) um so yeah um so but he patrick 
Sullivan was talking about how people have different, um, what did he call them, evangelization uh, languages, like, you know, like love languages, but this is evangelization, truth, beauty, and goodness. And mine was truth. Like, that's when I needed to hear the truth about Christianity. And I didn't know anything. I didn't understand who God was. Because to me, my understanding of the deity was Allah. And um, if that's all you understand, then there is no room for Christ and a understanding of a relationship with a God. Like, it's just um, it's a completely different view of deity. And that's why, like, when I give speeches, okay, I call that one Allah, even though technically it just means God in Arabic. Like, even Christians in, um, in Arabic-speaking countries, they call God Allah because, you know, they were there before. But I think it's important to make sure that they are different um, because you one needs to help a Muslim understand who God is before you can even come to crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, because the also the also the understanding of sin is different. And again, that stems from who God is. In Islam, um, Islam is very nominalist. Um, in Islam, a thing is a sin because Allah says so. Not because it's not good, um, whereas we believe that a thing is a sin because it breaks our relationship with the ultimate good, who is God. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? So yep. it's like God can never change what a sin is. Like it's kind of like can he make a rock that's too li- too too heavy for him to lift? Right. So mm-hmm. there's it just it just cannot happen. So anyway. Um, and she's, she was the first one who showed me this God, this God of the Bible that I never quite understood, which I didn't show much interest either because I kind of lumped them all together with Allah. So I talked to this lady for three years, uh, twice a week and two and a half hours a day. That's a lot of talking time, <laughs> even, even for me and even for her. And so at the end of these three years, that's what she convinced me that um, if there is a God, it no. There's a possibility that there's a God. <laughs> and if he's there, he would be all good, right? Like he can't be anything else, all good, perfect. And um, he can't look upon anything imperfect if he's so perfect and holy. And he was consistent because that's, as an atheist, this is like I was really interested in science. That always bothered me that we expect consistency from nature like why right like mm-hmm. yeah like why would we expect like kind of any physical rules or chemical rules anything that's same here and in mars when there's like nothing in between us like that consistency is in a way only compatible with an original source mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah which may or may not be god but so but he she's kind of helping me like this is this can all come from God. Like God is not so small that um, like going after science, trying to learn more is going to offend him. And that's one of the reasons 
uh, science doesn't develop much in Muslim countries. Again, it's very fatalistic. Um, like one's view of God affects one's life a lot more than <laughs> you would think. It's it's amazing. So anyway, so she convinced me that there's a there's possibly a God. But my problem was like, if this is this God is so holy, so perfect, and all powerful, why is there so much evil in the world, right? Your, it's your um, problem of evil, and that's I think at the end of the day comes from a limited understanding of what free will and sin is. Again, in Islam, there isn't um, original sin because sin is a very fluid. <laughs> I hate to use the term fluid nowadays, but very fluid concept, uh, then there can't be original sin. So um, I didn't quite understand, and I'm going to my studies, and um, I was learning English. Uh, my education language in, in for my undergrad, it was English. And um, the once in a while, they brought these Americans to teach us how to speak English, right? So Turks teaching us <laughs> to other Turks. <laughs> it's... Um, like, I remember it's like they made us watch CNN. I don't know. Is it a form of torture now? I don't know. <laughs> but um, so we actually sat down so we could get used to the accent and learn it. And he would they would put like this duct tape at the bottom so we wouldn't read the, you know, what is it called? <laughs> the, cap the, the captions or the yeah <laughs> subtitles? <laughs> yeah. You know, they have always like a running thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. CNN because so that we wouldn't cheat about what's going on. Because we were supposed to like listen to this conversation and understand it, you know? So listening comprehension, it's it's funny. So we had this American who was a Fulbright scholar, and um, he was a Buddhist. Wonderful, wonderful man. First guy I have ever met who was allergic to peanut. It was a nightmare for him to live in Turkey for a year. Uh, <laughs> but he was very anti-Christian. So um, to turn us off against Christianity, he uh, assigned us this chapter. I don't know. Have you, have you, if you haven't read my book, I hear um, this chapter is good. I hear it because I've written it. Of course it's good. But, but um, it's a book from Bro Brothers Karamazov. Um, it's written by Dostoevsky, yep. which I had read when I was younger, but I think I was too young, <laughs> you know, to, to appreciate it, I think. Um, so it was in English. Um and it was kind of an old kind of translation. It was kind of heavy. And um, and it's hefty for a, like a college homework. So we were supposed to read it and answer questions about it. So it's like in the middle of the night, I have these hefty, really, really hefty um, dictionaries. I had drank a lot of tea and coffee. Um, but this chapter was um, basically, this book chapter changed my life. Um, so what happens is, it's about Jesus's second, uh, Jesus's coming. It's not his second coming. He's just kind of visiting. So Dostoevsky was a uh, very faithful Christian, but he was an Orthodox. So he was very anti-Catholic. It's a miracle that I ended up in the church. <laughs> uh, so he, so Jesus comes to Earth just to hang out a little bit, see how things are going on uh, during this um, Inquisition time to Spain. So he's walking around the crowd. He heals people, and there's he raises this one girl from dead. And um, the Grand Inquisitor is a cardinal. He he watches um, Jesus, and he um, he realizes that everybody recognizes Christ, who he is, 
and he Christ gathers his following. So Cardinal goes after him with his guards and he asks his guards to um, arrest him. Nobody, people are so afraid of this Cardinal that nobody just says anything. So he throws Christ into dungeon. And at night, um, the Cardinal himself goes to visit Christ, who has not said one word yet. Um, he says, why are you here? We have been trying to fix what you messed up all those years ago. Um, you wanted to give these people heavenly bread, but all they want is earthly bread. All they want is security. Um, and they just want, you know, they want the money. They want the security. They don't care about the heavenly bread, the eternal life you offer. Um, you wanted to give, you wanted them to follow you freely, choose you freely. Um, but they don't care about freedom as long as, um, as long as their like worldly security is there. So as I read this, I under, I understood for the first time what free will is. Um, I don't know. It's maybe a very hard concept to wrap one's mind around it, but that's also is this Cardinal spoke to Christ and how Christ, um, rejected Satan's offers um, in the desert because he wanted, he knew that everything this world ever could offer was temporary and um, that son of God as fully man as he was would never fall these for these tricks. But at the same time, we fall for all the tricks that mm -hmm. Satan has offered. Right. So that's why he's here to save us, obviously, because we're sinful. So for the first time, it's like in the middle of the night, I'm reading this chapter. Wonderful chapter, by the way. Um, it's the chapter. So brother Karamazov, so there are four brothers. One of them is becoming a monk and the other one is a communist atheist. So this communist atheist is telling this parable to the monk brother so that the monk brother can see. But what it does is obviously the monk brother is like, yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong. Yeah, this is, this is, this is right. Um, so I'm like in the middle of the night, that's the, for the first time I understood my sin and my free will and my contribution to the evil in the world. Um, so like my selfish choices affected, I don't know, 10 people, right? My father's selfish choices affected, I don't know, 20 people, right? It doesn't matter how many. Mm-hmm. But that is the ripple effect of evil. Like the world is evil, not because of God, but it's because of our freedom and sin. So up until then, I was like a very staunch communist. So I always thought that the world was fixable if we only came up with the perfect system, right? Yeah. Like it was always an external, right? If you became a rapist, it was because your sexual urges were suppressed by society's unattainable um, standards, right? Like, <laughs> of course not. Yeah, because, you know, I never met. It's just mm -hmm. that's not how, how it is. So it was always external. But that's the that's when I understood sin. And it's, it's kind of held up a mirror to me to myself. And um, so this is the end of my sophomore year. And I'd say like that was my last intellectual hurdle that I passed. But what happened is, as it happens, <laughs> as the world happens, um, I was, I, I had a boyfriend, actually, I had a 
I don't I don't remember whether we were engaged or not. Um, I, I had a boyfriend who kind of moved to a different city um, at the end of that school year. She finished college and I still had two years. She, he moved to a different city. And this lady who has been teaching me English, I mean, whom I've been teaching Turkish to, she moved to America for like a sabbatical. So all these like, now I need to find another job. My boyfriend's gone. So I had to move back to the dorm. So like all these worldly concerns and uh, flooded in and I mm-hmm. kind of pushed everything aside. So as it happened, I found this, um, you know, the Lord doesn't let you go that easily. <laughs> <laughs> I found another family. They were looking for someone to teach their children Turkish. So I think the older guy was six and the younger one was two or three. So what happens when you start teaching the kids is like you're around the family life a lot more. Whereas before, it was just me and that lady. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, so the more I witnessed their life, the more I realized that I think they are faking this. Nobody has a happy family life like this because I had never seen it. <laughs> I thought they were this happy when I'm there and they're just normal, like, you know, lying, kind of bad parenting kind of family after I leave. But the more I spend time with them, the more I wanted to be in their house. Like they had to kick me out, literally. I mean, <laughs> it must, I am thinking, I'm looking back, just embarrassed. Like, I would leave their house like at 11. I'm like, this is no good. You know why? Because kids wake up at five, six in the morning. <laughs> you know, now, I, now I know as a parent. But it was like well, the joy and love of Christ was so palpable in their life because it was completely different witness. So this was the good, right? It was the beauty and the good because that's what I needed to see. Like, okay, intellectually I was there, but I also saw like, this is the life I want, right? Like if this could change my life actually. So it's not like some intellectual exercise in a way. Yeah. So it just, it's, it's the true conversion that will lead to a good life. Not necessarily like a health, you know, what is that, uh, wealth gospel, but it's like it will lead to a joyful and peaceful life, which I had never in my life. Like I was a very honest atheist because I said, you know what, if you think about at the end of your life that you're going to go, go and disappear and everything is meaningless, like you would be suicidal. So what you do is like you da- you live daily, mm-hmm. yep. you know. It's an atheist because nothing is lasting. Even if, let's say, you cured cancer, who cares at the end of the day? Because you know what? One million years from now, it's really not going to matter who had cancer, who did not. Like, does it make sense? Like, yeah, everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything becomes so meaningless. So I just kind of an honest, slightly depressed. I wasn't always depressed, but um, like clinically depressed. But I was always aware of that darkness beyond that. Uh, but like when I saw their life, it was like that joy. So I am agonizing. So this is referring, I am 22 now, beginning of my junior year, because I lost a couple of years before, um, after high school. So I'm like, okay, can I become Christian? If I become a Christian, what's going to happen with my boyfriend? What's going to happen with my job? Because remember, like you need to be Muslim. And I was in a good university to get a really good government job. Like my future was all set. Like if I became a Christian, I will never get a government clearance because Mm -hmm. that's that's the 
that's the kind of soft persecution that happens in Turkey, right? It's never like, usually most Christians are not afraid that they're going to get killed, even though that, even that happens. It's mostly this kind of, you know, you can't get a government job, you're kind of ostracized. So all these worldly concerns, and I couldn't make up my mind. I think it was like a week. And the Lord put all these little, little signs in my life, you know, signal graces, but I just didn't recognize them because I was so preoccupied with myself. So I'm going to classroom one day and um, I had this like, like very quick vision and um, which we can talk about why the Lord keeps sending visions to these crazy Muslim land people. <laughs> and I wasn't even Muslim. And I think that's why he didn't send me a dream because I thought that, you know, I was very Freudian, and like, they're yeah. my crazy, it's all my crazy subconscious. Um, so in, in this vision, because I was wide awake, I was walking. Um, so there's this little girl in a white dress sitting on the ground in a meadow. And it's like outdoors, big um, mountains in the backyard. She's looking on her lap and playing with little toys. And um, these two hands come from the sky and they're so big. Like you can't, you only see like below the wrist is so big. Um, and the, they're handing her this gift. And this gift is like not like your regular gift. It's like glowing, it's beautifully wrapped. You kind of realize that whatever is inside is like immensely valuable. Um, and, and more than anything, this little girl could even like ask for, hope for, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even see that this is being given to her. So finally she looks up and she says to the owner of the hand, she says, no, thank you. I have these little things to play with. And she has all these like tiny little toys you can't even see on her lap. And I'm like, are you stupid? How do you even compare your toys with that gift? Like nothing. Like you can't even see the gifts, she, like toys she's playing with. So I'm like, oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I was like, oh, I'm thinking about my boyfriend for the job or whatever. But like here, God is offering me eternal life. Yeah. Um, so anyway. That night I went to um, um, the lady whose who's sons I was teaching. They've been in Turkey for like three months, missionaries. I said, I think this is a good day to become a Christian. And she kind of dropped her. <laughs> and we said, the, you know, the Protestant prayer and we cried. And, you know, so that's, my, that's when my life changed forever. I got baptized in Turkey. Um, about five, six months later, um, because they kind of want to make sure that you're actually genuinely converting. Um, and then um, that's how it went. Wow. That, <laughs> that is, I know, it's that's, long. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. You've made this intellectual leap and then you um, saw this family that showed you kind of the practical lived out faith aspect of that. What kind of prompted your transition then from Protestant evangelical Christianity into Catholicism? Well, I did not become Catholic willingly. It, I was even more unwilling to become Catholic, <laughs> Catholic than Christian <laughs> uh, because it's very uh, Turkey is very anti-Catholic. Like I don't know if you know, but in during the reformations, the Ottoman Empire sided with the Protestant princes because he's like, hey, if Christians kill kill each other, then we don't have to go kill them all. So. You know, so um, it's very anti-Catholic, like all the bad guys are Catholics in all Turkish movies. And in the Protestant circles I hung out with, um, 
they were very anti-Catholic. You know, the church is the whore of Babylon. Yeah. The Pope is the Antichrist. Like, they worship Mary. I mean, it's just like, you think of all the <laughs> Protestant, you know, misconception about yeah, yeah. this. They were there. So anyway, uh, after I became a Christian, me and a few friends of mine, we were running a teenager camp for Turkish Christians. And one of the guys that I worked with there, um, so we kind of had um, like groups, like um, co-ed groups, and then we would have a girl counselor and a guy counselor. So he was, we were usually assigned together because we were like similar in age, interests, and all that stuff. Anyway, so he's an American who grew up in Turkey, and then he was studying at Notre Dame. And um, so, okay, whatever. So a few years later, he, he came back. He finished Notre Dame. He came back. He was working in Istanbul. And I was still in Ankara getting my master's degree. And we, came, we became good friends. So uh, my roommate and I, we um, went to Istanbul for a conference. It's like, um, do you want to meet with us, Anthony? And he's like, sure, for lunch. So I am thinking between me and this faithful Christian, maybe we can evangelize my uh, roommate. It's going to be great, you know. So... <laughs> So I show up there and he's like, Daddy, I'm going to tell you something, but don't be mad. I was like, what can it be? It's like, I became Catholic. And I was, I could not believe my ears. I'm like, no, you did not. So I kind of like spew back at him, like everything I heard from my Southern Baptist. Yeah, yeah. Calvinist. I'm like, oh no. So I'm like, no, you didn't. So anyway, so we end up fighting whole lunch like not like even and it's like he's just this gentle soul right and i'm like just going crazy and my my roommate whom i had of the evangelized like sitting there watching you know when i eat my soup and watch these people <laughs> so anyway, we go I, I go back down i'm like i am gonna prove him wrong i gotta find a catholic theology book and just read it and like i i don't know anything about catholicism nothing right it's all hearsay you would think i would have read some about it so i go to our university library i love this because this this will show you how little i knew so i go to the library and there's only one book on catholic theology and it's written by this guy called joseph cardinal ratzinger whoever he was i don't know <laughs> I had no idea. And I go in there, I pick up this book. It's so called, again, whoever is titling these books, sorry, your eminence, but it's called Introduction to Catholic Theology. Have you seen this by Ignatius? <laughs> like this huge volume. Awesome book, huge volume. I pick it up, I open it. I couldn't even get past this introduction. Like, <laughs> like I slowly close it. I didn't even understand, let alone refer it. The arrogance, it just doesn't go away. So I'm like, I put it back like with respect because I didn't understand. I didn't know he was the Pope. Like I, I had no idea. So anyway, he'll, he'll always be my Pope because of that. <laughs> so I go back and my friend Anthony, he sent he had sent me a book and in and on the inside he wrote, um, so that you know that I haven't gone completely crazy. So it's by uh, Mark Shea. Uh, by what authority have you mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know, so he takes about talks about all the catholic um beliefs and he uses the scriptures and that was the beginning of the end and um next thing 
I am trying to get this poor Jesuit, <laughs> 75-year-old Jesuit, to listen to me because they're like they don't evangelize in Turkey except for one church. Um, so I ended up getting confirmed into the Catholic Church in 2008, right? Yes, so 11 years ago. So yeah, yeah. God um, doesn't let me get away with stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a remarkable story because I mean that that last part of your story mirrors a lot of conversion stories. I mean, certainly mine. I didn't have Mark Shea's book, but I had plenty of books like that. Um, it's just so fascinating that that's kind of the tail end of this remarkable journey uh, out, of, out of Islam. And then, you know, it wasn't quite done yet because you became a Christian and then, you know, you're like you say, God had a bit more for you to go still, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I feel like I just got off at the wrong station. Stop <laughs> for stop to go. That's why I tell people, like, I know it sounds crazy, but it makes sense when you listen to it. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating. So uh, where, what I want to ask you next is this. What... Um, if we begin thinking about how to dialogue with uh, Muslims, what would you say that Muslims and Catholics have in common, a common ground to start with? The four Catholics, I think, more than Protestants. This is, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot with another, um, happens to be a Protestant who is becoming Catholic. Um, he served in Muslim countries. I think our liturgy, done well, has a lot to offer to Muslims because they are very um, Islam is a very reverent religion because of that servile fear right that master mm -hmm. um, the master slave relationship like you go to a mosque like you take off your shoes there is like a ritual ablution like there is this sense of awe and um, like my husband and I go to Latin mass and there's this similar sense of awe that's due to the creator of the universe mm -hmm. right yeah. so I think like the, the Catholic church can start from there and it will be very helpful. And I know not a lot of Catholics have done this thinking that, oh, this is so Western. But um, what happened, which many people don't realize that why, where did Muhammad get all these ritualistic ideas from? Right. Like mm -hmm. you think about Ramadan, a month long fast. Does it some does it sound familiar? You know, <laughs> So it was the land, and back in the day, the Christians' land observance was so strict. Ramadan looks like looked easy, like he made it a little easier on people, you know. Like so, um, month long land fasting period, and then a few days of celebration, like Easter. So like, there's a lot of these things Muhammad borrowed from the Christians, um, or like they pray five times a day. I don't know, maybe liturgy of the hours, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so, like, yeah. does it make sense? There's a lot of, like, parallel stuff. Um, so I think we, if you open it that, from that door, if you're talking to a strict Muslim, that is, I would definitely start from that respect, reverence, and awe. Don't take him to a folk mass or whatever, you know? That's just <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like, does it make sense? Also, there yeah, are levels of... Islam as well. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. so the, like you're, like that. That's I think interesting to point out as well, right? There's in the same way you have uh, the say Catholic and Easter, or sorry, Christmas and Easter Catholics. There's the same kind of like cultural cultural Muslim, right? In in Islam, right? Yes, definitely a lot. Like my brother, for instance, he um, when I first became a Christian, looking back 
it's unfortunate that I wasn't Catholic, but he was really stuck with Trinity. Like he could not get a word because, you know, we are taught it. Um, it's, this is in the Quran as well. That, um, uh, the Trinity means Christians worship the father, the son, and the mother who's Mary, like, which is obviously ridiculous. <laughs> you know, a little about Christianity, yeah. but they get stuck because again, so survive here. They're so afraid. Like we had this little kind of a oath, like not oath, like a creed thing that we had to say. And it's like, Allah is one. He was never been begotten or he would never beget or does it make sense? It's like this old mm-hmm. anti-Christian stuff mm-hmm. that we had to say so like when that's hammered into your head even when you become a kind of a whatever nominally muslim that's stuck still in your head like my 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 brother couldn't get past the problem of trinity she, he was stuck there and i i didn't know when i was talking to him enough about the trinity to explain it better so like what you need to do is like you need to find them where they're stuck if they know a little bit about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the best thing is to like bring them there with questions. You may have to learn a little more about Islam and read the Quran, which is not a pleasant read. <laughs> but you kind of need to this like give and take thing. Like, you know, I will mm-hmm. learn about religion if you learn about my about mine. Like I don't understand. You say the Bible is changed. Can you tell me where it is changed? Right. We have all these early manuscripts. Do you know when it is changed? Right. So like, does it make sense? So like, bring yes, questions. yes. Yeah. And I wanted to I wanted to address that. I had uh, Rod Bennett on the podcast um, recently, and he talked about the idea of an apostasy in the church. So the church that Christ founded um, somehow got lost along the way. And and he in, in that kind of framework of the of the catholic church being lost he has a lot to say about islam and how islam is a kind um has their own apostasy theory of how this this church um and the bible kind of got lost right so yeah i I was wondering then i guess historically he says that islam was viewed as a kind of christian um heresy right it was it was this kind of distortion of Christianity based on these poor ideas of who Jesus was and what the church was and what these practices were. And when you talk about the idea of these these fasts being similar to Lenten fast and these mm-hmm. prayers being similar to Liturgy of the Hours, it sounds a lot like what Rod was describing last week about this Islam viewing the the Christian church as as broken and Islam and, and and Muhammad fix this in a certain way, right? Is that is that right. how Catholics should kind of be thinking about um, Islam when they're sharing their faith with Muslims? You know what? It's kind of hard because maybe I don't quite understand what heresy is. Like Rod would be a better person maybe to talk about this because I know uh, Belloc's, Belloc, Hilar Belloc talks about it. Islam is one of the like the like the heresy of heresies because mm-hmm. it's like kind of. We are going to pick up all these heresies and make it into a religion. And ta-da. Um, also, Rod Ben's Apostasy, that was an awesome book. It's one of the best books like I've ever read, actually. <laughs> because it shows, I'm like, oh, we've always been messed up. The church yes. has always been messed up. Absolutely. So it's a great book. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, but so here's what I'm thinking. But I may be wrong. Again, because I don't have like a... I know what a heresy is and I kind of understand. But I think... Either usually aren't the heresies like a willful in a way corruption of the teaching. I don't know, I don't know how much 
Muhammad actually knew about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like yeah, I think definitely. about like Arius, like like the Nestorian heresy, which I we think a lot of people think his first wife, Aisha, was a Nestorian, and that's why he's like he has a lot of kind of little Nestorian bents, and he has he has a really hard time with um, Christ's divinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, he may have been affected by other heresies that was popular then. But I'm having a hard time saying it was a heresy because I don't think Muhammad knew enough about Christianity to make it, make it into a heresy. Does mm-hmm. it make sense? Yeah, it's like copy no, of a copy. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's like copy of a copy of a copy. Like, he heard it um, rather than he's, like, part of it. Um, right. So it's I kind mean, of a, distor- a distortion of a distortion of Christianity almost. Right. So, like, I don't know, would that be heresy? I mean, it could be. So I don't um, I don't think he knew enough, mm-hmm. honestly. Like, when you read the Quran and his life, like, you can tell um, there's a lot a lot of biblical stories in the Quran. But, like, all these things are missing. Mm-hmm. Like, a story in Abraham's story. Like, it's all these, like, the stories, like, gist of it is there. But the details are as if you play this telephone game, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he just the guy at the end didn't quite get what was said at first. So, that, so is that a, is that a useful thing to keep in mind when talking to Muslims about their faith? Do you think knowing that idea? Yes, and I think like because most of them still know these stories a little distorted, but it, we have a common ground to start a conversation with. But of course, like don't just have a conversation so that you like for dialogue's sake. Right, our desire is to bring Muslims into the faith, because the you know Christ changes people's lives, all, like not only eternally, but it starts from now and here at this moment. Because I I feel like with us in the Catholics, um, it's either like all Muslims are going to hell, or oh they're okay, right? Mm-hmm. We all believe in the believe and worship the same God, so let's sing Kumbaya and be happy. So, but there's a you know middle ground. Yeah, you know what? The Lord loves them as much as He loves us, and He desires Muslims' salvation. But that's why we have to teach them, preach them, and tell them about Christ. But it's kind of hard. To, as I said, it's a hard soil, so it's kind of you need to be careful. And it takes a long time, but it's it's basically you kind of need to break that wall of doubt, right? mm-hmm. like start to crack. So you always need to ask questions, and it's like, um, and then witness a good life. Like this is so important, you know. Be joyful. They need to see men be like men, yet still be servants of their families, right? Like right. this is such a contradiction. Or the same with women, same with children. I mean, it's like the the Christian family life is just a wonderful witness in itself. Or priestly life. Um, It's like, what do you mean you don't have sex? Like, is that even possible for a man, right? It offers (laughs) such a contrast that it just kind of makes people stop and think. So, like, you know, everybody has um, a life witness and pray. I mean, our ask for our ladies' intercession, like, Sometimes we just need divine intervention, like dreams. The Lord, that's one of the reasons Muslims put a lot of, um, they think dreams are, yeah, like premonitions or whatever. Like they have a 
it's not they're not Freudian in the least. <laughs> so, uh, which is a good thing. And they have a lot of dreams. Um, yes, I wanted to ask you about that because you mentioned uh, you had a vision, not quite a dream. You said <laughs> right, but is that a is that a powerful way that you're seeing uh, like God working in in Muslim areas? I mean, it's ridiculously common. I mean, I think everybody has it because, first of all, the decision is such a life-changing decision. Like, my life wasn't threatened. Um, I, fi I find myself blessed for it. But a lot of Muslims, they, you know, um, if they're, it's found out they're baptized, they're Christians, they, um, they will, their life will be forfeit. So it's like such a big, huge decision. You kind of need a really big shove to go that way and I think the Lord is willing to grant that and I think in the West we would have had more visions and dreams had we like had we believed that he would give them to us in mm -hmm. a way does it sure. make sense yeah 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 okay I mean he kind of gives us as much as we we ask them for like I, I've been talking to this Egyptian lady and she said she started to doubt as she read the Quran she speaks Arabic she started to doubt what she read and she prayed. It was Ramadan and she fasted all day and she said, like, Allah, Lord, please give me a dream of Muhammad so I know that all these doubts go away. So she goes to bed and she has a dream of Christ and his mother. Wow. And that's like, and that's one of the dreams that she had. She still had a long way because it's just so hard. Like mm -hmm. you're going against everything and again this is a hard thing for the western mind like who cares a westerner converse to this and that right i mean it's not like that in muslim countries the community is very intact social more social norms are very intact everybody's in into each other's business honor is a big thing yeah. does it make sense yeah. so it's just completely mm -hmm. different that's why i think the lord gives them because it's needed also they ask for it you know yeah so what are some of the the biggest obstacles would you say you mentioned a few i think already but to muslims accepting christianity or catholicism like what are some of the biggest roadblocks well i definitely say if you want to talk to a muslim you will have to learn how to talk about trinity i um i recorded a podcast episode about how um saint thomas explained it um it's like a he this cantor from Antioch who was talking to Muslims all the time, he asked, he wrote a letter to St. Thomas. How awesome is this? <laughs> you can't just write a letter to St. Thomas and he writes back. I'm like, ah, there we go. So he writes back this, um, the reasons for our faith. It's like a little pamphlet. And he explains the Trinity um, in a way that is not going to be offensive to Muslims. Like usual, usual Catholic depictions of Trinity looks very much like we believe in three gods mm -hmm. like the old man <laughs> and the dove and jesus like it's very much look like they are separate even though like if you're a good catholic you understand right these are just symbols or whatever but to an um, muslim mind that's not the way to start so definitely read that and because the way he explains it is a lot more like okay it's one it's the same thing and he explains how uh, what word means like you know yeah, yeah logos like so it's it's a good way to explain and start so definitely learn about the trinity that's hard and crucifixion is hard because i think muhammad took it very personal i um if you haven't read great read a little kind of um you still you need to know enough about islam to read this book it's by um david pino um 
the crucifix on Mecca's front porch. Uh, he got it got published last year, I think. But what he does is he takes you into the mind of Mohammed. Wonderful, wonderful work. He's a you know he's American. Um, but he served in Muslim countries. He speaks Arabic. Does his own translations. But Muhammad, one of the things he says is Muhammad identified with Jesus the most. Because he thought he was like rejected because he was rejected by Jews. Wherever he went, he was rejected and then he became a, you know, warrior or whatever. But he identified with Jesus the most. But because in the Bible, Jesus claims to have been crucified, this was very repulsive to him because he didn't want to be crucified. Right. So Christ's crucifixion is a very big hurdle. So that's one of the things like we need to why why he was he crucified and how do we know that he was crucified and they have all these Muslims have different theories so that's another thing we kind of need to be able to explain but I think the biggest thing is just be willing to listen and be willing to ask questions most Muslims are you know not like ISIS they just want to <laughs> you know they want a house they want a car and um I mean, there is the, the social norms are different. So I will definitely observe the difference between men and men. Like if you're a, um, if you're a woman, I kind of would try to steer away from the men in general or, um, vice versa. So there's like social norms are different. It's stricter in some countries, like in Turkey, that's not the case. But if you're talking to someone from more Middle Eastern countries, so just be aware that it's kind of different much more different social norms um, than the West. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, you pray a lot, like go always in prayer, offer like fast, because it's a really big spiritual battle. I mean, you know, the devil doesn't want anyone to convert, <laughs> um, least of all Muslims. So um, lots of prayers. But I say try a way to penetrate that, wall that fence of doubt somehow and that's like that's going to start this fall you know the mm -hmm. domino effect what do you i want to ask you one last thing and i don't know um if you can answer this but maybe you have some insight i'm wondering what the the road ahead looks like for muslim conversions to catholicism i mean you mentioned that muslims are being given dreams and, and visions and the power in that uh, is there a sense that there's uh, there's a, a work taking place? I mean, is there a sense that God is beginning to move in a different way in Muslim communities? Do you think? Um, weirdly enough, um, this internet, as evil as it can be, has been very influential because, like, even for me, it was this is not long ago. It's like early two thousands. It was hard for me to find Christian stuff to actually read, but now it's not so. You know, if you have a computer, you can get online and read whatever you want to read. Uh, even in restrictive countries, you can probably access the apologetic material, right? Mm -hmm. So that's been wonderful. And ISIS made a lot of people question, a lot of, because it's there. I mean, ISIS is very, um, I feel like they're like the house churches of <laughs> Islam, <laughs> you know, it's like, we're just going to go to the root for of it and we're just going to do whatever Muhammad did because he was successful and he told us to do it. And it's in there. It's in the Quran. Like, so when people's like, oh, are they actually Muslims? 
if they're Muslims, do I want to be a Muslim? So I hear a lot of people are getting disillusioned because mm-hmm. like I thought this, you know, um, because most Muslims, again, they just don't know enough their, of their faith. Like you look outside, how many people you see walking actually read the Bible, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like, you know, it's like this is a similar thing. Um, so, yeah, so those are the two things. And for Catholics, I think uh, we definitely dropped the missionary ball. <laughs> and I am so grateful for our Protestant brethren to have picked it up. I mean, um, I don't know where I would be. I mean, the Lord, again, always finds ways. But I'm very grateful for their missionary zeal, which is also dying now. But I see more hope in the Catholic Church, like the young people, the younger generation of priests and even laity for this desire to preach the gospel. So I think there's a lot more hope. And again, we have much to offer with our liturgy. It's a lot more familiar to Muslims. I mean, you know, they worship facing East and this reverence again, like there's just so much in common mm-hmm. again. Um, so I think it'll be an easier change. I never felt I went to a charismatic, um, like a four square church. Do you know a four square? Yeah. I mean, okay. Um, yeah, so I never felt comfortable there. Um, and I think a lot of Muslim like background people would have hard time to kind of get used to that, especially for men. So a good liturgy uh, has a lot to offer. So I think, you know, there's always hope. Yeah, oh, that's very fascinating. And hey, I don't think that we are that old. You mentioned the younger generation are very evangelical for our faith. I don't think that either of us are are that old. And I think we're doing an okay job in trying <laughs> to promote the Catholic faith. Hey, so I hurt my back in the baseball field today. I am like, yep, this is it. This is this is the day I am officially old. Like, I can't even walk. Yeah, I know. It's like I told um. I took one of my kids to the doctor's office and I asked the doctor, said, are you a resident? He's like, no, I've been a doctor for six years. I'm like, yep, you look like a resident to me. That means <laughs> I am definitely old if doctors are looking young too. Oh. So. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining me today in the podcast. I think this has been fantastic and I think the listeners will really enjoy uh, hearing um, your story and hearing your insights into how we can better dialogue with our, our Muslim brothers and sisters. Um, where can people find out more about you? You mentioned your podcast, which is a fabulous podcast, and your book, which is a fabulous book. So where can people go to find those things? Um, so I have a website. It's daddyalittle.com, D-E-R-Y-A. Um, so I usually try to stay on top of things there. And uh, my book is From Islam to Christ, uh, published by Ignatius Press. So if you haven't read it, I hear it's a page turner. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just started uh, podcasting because all the cool kids are doing it. And, uh, you know, why, why not? But it's more like um, uh, I think we just need to evangelize more and um and we just need to stop worrying about where the church is going to go or are we all going to die. No, it's like we just take one step at a time, you know, like just evangelize what we can, our children, our neighbors. So it's kind of, a, you know, I'm having fun podcasting. It's called Live a Little. Uh, so you you get it, Live a Little. Yeah, I was, I, you know what, I, I, I wanted that name for my podcast and, and you already took it, so... No, I like it. <laughs> no. 
Well, it's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here and uh, and take care. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This was wonderful. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Please make sure to like the Cordial Catholic on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. You can visit the website at thecordialcatholic.com for any show notes. I have links there to Daria's book, her website, her fantastic podcast. And I should say, she mentioned briefly uh, her podcast on the Trinity. And it's a fantastic one if you want to dig deeper into the topic we touched on briefly in this episode. She digs into Thomas Aquinas' fantastic writing on how to talk to Muslims about the Trinity. It's a great resource and a fantastic podcast. It's called Live a Little. She mentioned that, I think. And you can find that also where all fine podcasts are found and in the show notes for this podcast. Please do check it out and support the work she's doing. It's fantastic. Please make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Tuned In Radio, or wherever else you find your podcasts. And please make sure to review the podcast if you can on that platform. All of your reviews help to push this podcast out to new people who are looking for something new to listen to. Hey, if you feel called, if you feel led, if you feel like you want to support this podcast, I appreciate all of your support. Prayers are important, as is fasting, and as is any financial support you can provide for me. I'm at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, and it doesn't take very much to fund this podcast, and I already have a couple of very generous supporters and patrons, and I would love some more to help keep these things going. If you like the work I do, it helps a lot to have a little bit of money to help fund it. Thank you so much for those who already do. Thank you for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.